Well, please remain standing for our scripture reading or sermon scripture reading, which is taken from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. This is the word of the Lord. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, We are taking a break from our regular series of Chronicles, and we are going to pick up in our series of prayers from the Bible. And this one is a a prayer. Thank you, Chandler. Uh, This one is a prayer from 2 Thessalonians, a prayer from the Apostle Paul to the Church of Thessalonia, or Thessalonica. And um, I just want to say thank you. I've been up here to preach a couple of times. I haven't formally said thank you, so I just want to say thank you so much for giving me the opportunity uh, to bring God's Word. Um, It is a a heavy task, Um, so I just want to say thank you uh, for entrusting that to me. And then thank you also to Eden, my wife, for uh, caring for the kids a little bit more than usual and relieving me of fatherly duties to prepare, so thank you. So... Let's, let's begin with prayer. Lord, we are here to open your word, to consider your word, because we want to be more Christ-like. We want to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, we trust that you have given your spirit to uh, enliven our hearts, to respond properly to it, to understand its spiritual significance, that what it says is true, that Jesus is king that Jesus is reigning, although now we live in a world that's broken. So I pray this morning that you would give us strength, that we would receive your word well. I pray that you'd catch us up more into your story uh, for the glory of Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I moved moved to Louisville, I found myself sitting in an office at work, with non-Louvillian co-workers, a bunch of us together talking about the quirks of this city. One of my co-workers noted that Louvillians often 
do not boast about where they attend college or what they do for work, but often where they go to high school. He said to me, where I'm, from, where I'm from, no one cares where you attended high school, so no one boasts about it. His opinion was affirmed by another coworker, a former football player from Trinity, who said, yeah, that's just part of the culture of Louisville. Your high school can be a big deal in this city. So let me ask you a question. What do you boast about? And before you get defensive and say, I don't boast, what are you talking about? Let me clarify what I mean. When we use the word boast today, we often mean bragging, but that is not the only use of the word. Boast in another sense means to make much of. In this sense, all of us boast, so it's not quite a question of uh, if we boast, but what we boast about. We boast about cars, food, books, art, music artists, hi, uh, historical heroes, art, children, parents, relatives, friends, jobs, church, the list goes on. I knew a man who boasted about his coffee mug. He said, Josh, this coffee mug is the best coffee mug because when you put it in the microwave, the handle doesn't get hot. Now, I don't know if that's a generational thing. Maybe handles used to get unusually hot back in the day, and coffee makers, coffee mug makers have just refined their craft more, so that's not the case. I don't know. But that's just not something I care about or boast about. But he did. And all of us boast about things we care about, and in this passage we see, that, we see what, what Paul cares about. Our passage this morning is a prayer in, the letter, in a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church at, at a Greek city called Thessalonica, and Paul offers the prayer in verses 11 and 12 of our text. The content for his prayer is that God would empower the church to do good works. He tells us that he is praying for good works for another purpose. He begins, to this end we always pray for you. To what end? The purpose is found in the preceding verses where Paul boasts in the church in expectation of Christ's return. So the main point from our passage this morning is that Paul boasts in the persecuted church and he prays that God will fulfill every resolve for good so that when Jesus returns, the day of his return will reveal an abundance of good works. We're going to see this in two parts this morning. First, we're going to look at the context of the prayer. Paul boasts in the Thessalonian church in expectation of Jesus' return. And then we're going to look at Paul's prayer itself. Paul prays for God to fulfill every desire for good works in hope of Jesus' return. That's verse 11 through 12. So, Paul begins his boast with a bit of an argument. In verse, we're looking at verse 3. He says this, we ought always to, to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. He says he think, gives thanks to God for them as is right. He says this, my thanksgiving is not merely a personal choice. It's not merely a personal response but it is absolutely good and fitting that I boast in you, Thessalonians, before God. Uh, why? Because this type of growth is what God desires, and it gives glory to God. He hears that they are growing in faith and increasing in love, which is the will of God and the proper fruit of the gospel. Jesus died to reconcile a fallen world to the Father through faith. So Paul 
boasts with confidence that his emotional response, his desire that's welling up in response to what they have done, who they are in Christ, his emotional response properly corresponds to reality and also to God's will. And part of Paul's boast specifically about this church is that they are enduring in the face of affliction and persecution. So Paul tells them he boasts because of their steadfastness and faith in all their persecutions and afflictions that they are enduring. Acts 17 provides a picture of this affliction they face. So please uh, turn, with their, turn there with me in your Bibles to Acts 17. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9 together. Acts 17, 1 through 9. Now when they, speaking of Paul, he's on his missionary journey, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So Paul goes into the synagogue. He proclaims the gospel, and out of jealousy, the Jewish leaders incite a mob, and then drag a number of Christians before the city authorities. They accused them of undermining Roman authority, and the city's leaders were particularly disturbed because uh, they were afraid that Rome would clamp down on their freedom, and so they began to treat the Christians with hostility. Paul, due to the danger, left the city, but sent Timothy back to check on how they're doing and to offer support and discipleship. This letter is Paul's response after Timothy's uh, visits, to the, visits the city at least twice, and found that the persecution and hostility, hostility continued, but that in spite of it, they were continuing to grow in faith. Now, Paul's, bo Paul's boast, although it includes their perseverance in affliction, is not primarily about that. It is primarily about what their faith and pers perseverance means when Jesus returns. Consider verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, this being their perseverance in the midst of affliction, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Paul says their faith is a plain token or sign of God's righteousness because when Jesus returns, they may be or will be found worthy to inherit the kingdom of God. Now they suffer in their own, in their own city from their own friends and neighbors, but they return good in the face of evil and continue to live godly lives. They continue to gather together, break bread, even when their neighbors and friends don't want them to. They want to be citizens of a city where Jesus is king, and they are willing to die in obedience to that king. So Paul boasts in them 
because their perseverance to live godly lives demonstrates that God is just to forgive their sins on the basis of faith and not works, because faith produces Christ-like righteousness, and that Christ-like righteousness will be revealed on the day of judgment. This passage shows us that the primary end of Jesus' return is to be glorified in his saints. We see this because Paul sandwiches this long section about the wrath of God between two statements of Jesus being glorified in his saints. Verse 10 says that God is going to judge all sin. When he comes on the day, what's the purpose of that day? To be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. By some mystery, the glory of Christ, the one who is perfect, the one who possesses very light of light from God himself, his glory is going to be it's, it's hard to say, augmented and inseparably bound up with the glory of the saints. The good works of the believers will lead to Jesus being made much of. Paul boasts in the Thessalonians because he wants to make much of Jesus and he wants to participate in God's glory on that day. God's plan of redemption transforms sinners into saints, into heirs, into children so that we are united to Christ in his glory. In 1 Thessalonians 2.19, uh, Paul says of this church, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Look, Jesus came and died so that we could have fellowship with him, and that means he, he is going to give of his glory. Paul likewise imitates Christ by giving of his intention, his energy, his life. He was beaten, he was bruised to help spread the word of God's reconciliation so the church might receive the gift of Christ's glory at the day of his return. In this passage, we also see that Jesus' return is like a double-sided coin that a Christian cannot divorce or separate. On the one side of the coin is the joy of Christ's return to gather in his saints. The other side is that those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus will suffer punishment of eternal destruction. Verse 6, Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when, Je when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. Jesus' coming will close the window to the time of reconciliation and his plan of redemption. All those who are not found in Christ will justly suffer the wrath of God because it is the righteous punishment for sin. It is not an arbitrary punishment, but the fitting end of all sin against God that takes his gifts and does not offer him worship and praise as the only true God. And friend, if you are here this morning and you have not believed in the gospel of Christ, the window and the door is still open to you. Please believe in that message while the time is still available. So I had a chance to walk through the Speed Art Museum last week. And I saw art from various people groups throughout history, Greece, Rome, Native American art, medieval, African, you name it. 
Why is art so prevalent wherever human beings live? God has given in richness so that we might not only find what we need, but we can also make the world beautiful, aesthetically pleasing, sublime. Life given from God overflows in us into creativity and beauty. The purpose, the problem, sorry, the problem is that sin takes God's gifts, all that life, all that vitality, which is meant to point us to God in worship and tries to possess it by our own right apart from God and so turns those gifts towards death. The eternal destruction of hell makes clear and plain something we in our nature do not want to acknowledge. Our our felt sense of self-sustainability apart from God leads to destruction for ourselves and others. The coming of Jesus leaves no room for boasting apart from Christ. The reason the Thessalonian church shows God's righteousness is because their faith removes all basis for boasting over anyone or in ourselves. It provides a deep well of gratitude and strength by which to act like God. Anything of value finds its root and foundation in God's grace so that all good works are dependent on God. Now, Paul, I think in this passage, mentions God's wrath primarily, primarily to help the church face injustice. Verse 6, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. The motivation behind Paul's statement is a Christ-like love for the church and the gospel. He is not reveling in the destruction of sinners, although he is boasting in the victory of Jesus, which is the realization of perfect justice. But he is providing hope and justice for justice when the Thessalonian church has little or no recourse to find it. Paul's purpose is to free the church from bitterness, hopelessness, or a desire for vengeance. Jesus will bring justice. This frees them to continue to stand firm, to be established in good works, and to continue to offer to their neighbors, those that are afflicting them, the message of the gospel. Do we desire to overcome obstacles to both express and share our faith because we want to make much of Christ? How often do we consider the coming of Christ? In the midst of affliction, do we find peace, not indifference, but peace because Jesus will administer perfect justice? So that's the context of his prayer. And second point, Paul prays for God to fulfill every desire for good works and hope of Jesus' return. To this end, to this end, everything we just talked about, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every good work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What we... Paul's... So, what we've seen so far in the context is we've seen Paul seeing evidence of grace in the saints from the moment of their conversion till now, uh, in the, from verse 3 to 10. And now what he's doing is he's praying from now till Christ's return, may there be an abundance of good works. So just to 
give you an illustration of what this means. Right now, I am working in insurance. I had to take a test for work in order to get my insurance licenses. I knew early on that my employer, employer wanted me to pass this test. They gave me office supplies for flashcards. They purchased software so that, that simulated my exams so I would know how the test felt. They brought me in previous, they brought previous employees in who already took the, the test to quiz our knowledge. They provided snacks, water, coffee, energy drinks, and a quiet environment. I knew that my employer wanted me to pass the test because of all this evidence of it, and also because um, they not only were paying for me to take the test, but also I could not serve the clients, their clients, until I had passed it. Paul's prayer conveys his desire for this church to pass the test on the day of judgment, not by the skin of their teeth, but by an abundance of good works. Paul's prayer also reflects the heart of Jesus, who is the judge. Jesus desires a wealth of good works, so although his, his return should inspire fervent, holy fear, it should also fill our hearts with joy because Jesus is coming to dwell with us and receive all works done in faith. The point of good works is that the name of Jesus, our Lord Jesus, may be glorified. Where is he going to be glorified? In you. Paul has already said this in his letter, but he repeats it because he wants to drive the point home. Jesus wants to be glorified in you through your actions and through the Christ-like state of your heart, a heart that has put away anger, backbiting, selfishness, and has put on long-suffering, affirmation, hospitality, diligence. Now, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 14, if you want to turn there real quickly with us. We'll come back to 2 Thessalonians in a second. But 1 Corinthians 3, 12 14, through 14 gives us a longer explanation of what Jesus' return will look like for the Christian. We are saved by faith, but Jesus' holiness will still refine and cut away what is sinful within us. In 1 Corinthians, Paul gives the Corinthians a charge, saying that he laid the foundation of Christ by faith, and now they must be careful about how they build upon that foundation. This passage is about their sanctification, and he, in light of Jesus' return, and it says this, now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire." When the day of the Lord comes, all of our works will be tested by the fire of God's holiness. Paul refers to different materials because, one, of their varying value, but also, two, how they respond to fire and pressure. Are they refined or are they consumed? What we do now, who we are becoming, will either be refined or it will be consumed. Any part of our lives, our choices, loves, affections, virtues, or any other aspect of what we call ourselves that does not rest in Christ will be burnt away. Our response to Christ's return should be humble, contrite fear, because Jesus will bring all of our life, every thought, word, and deed into account. Our response should also be joy, because God not only saves us from wrath, but can carefully disentangle 
what is good in our intentions because he has placed them there by his Spirit from any attending sin. God not only desires to produce good works, but he desires to find it on the final day. So we recently had an example in Louisville of what it's like to, for something to suddenly be revealed, didn't we? We knew it was coming, but we didn't know where it was coming or the exact amount. I saw a map on Facebook that explained that the brood X cicadas were going to emerge in great numbers and with a really loud sound right in the middle of Louisville. And I wondered from February to May how many of them were buried in my backyard. I didn't know. And what I found was there really weren't any. I, I didn't hear any. I didn't really see any. I just saw a couple of shells. But then I was driving on 64 north of Louisville on the way to Middletown. And again, I was surprised by how many cicadas there were. They were hitting my car. They were skipping down the road. They were landing on the car in front of me, darting across the road. And on the shoulder of the road, there was a thick layer of pollen. Only the pollen crawled. They were everywhere. Friend, this may sound cheesy, but God desires you, your good works to be more numerous than the brood X cicadas on Highway 64. Our God is a God of fecundity, endless supply, the Lord of hosts, and he desires all of our actions would be revealed as gold on the day of the Lord. They are certainly not always going to be that way, but we should act, intend, and pray towards that end. Here, Paul is praying that the day of judgment will reveal an abundant amount of good works. Paul's heart is that those he serves and labors after, over, would, their good works would far outstrip him in his own holiness because that is no loss to him. He desires to see Christ reflected through a million different prisms. And Paul's desire should be the desire of every believer. It can be easy to think, you know, Paul's a leader, he's over the church, and somehow this is going to be reflected uh, on him in a way that it's not going to be reflected on us. However, we too will see the glory of Christ revealed on the final day. We will be gathered before the throne of Jesus and see perfect justice administered. And everyone who we've covenant, covenanted with, that we are members of in this church, their, their lives will be weighed. And the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Do we care how much of each other's lives are revealed to be gold or straw. Paul doesn't know what the Thessalonians' lives will look, look like on the day of Christ's return. He doesn't even know what his own life will look like on the day of Christ's return. He knows that he'll be saved, that he is doing good works, that God has prepared for him good works, but he doesn't know exactly how all of his actions will be weighed. But... He prays, because why not? Why not the church of Thessalonica be a multitude of their actions be revealed as gold? And the same thing for Vine Street. Why not during this season we pray that a multitude of our actions and intentions would be revealed as gold on the day of Jesus Christ so that we might boast in each other because it makes much of Christ? How do we live out this passage and pray it? At the, foundation of Paul, at the foundation is Paul's dependence on Christ's death and resurrected power. So consider daily that we have died to the world for the sake of, of good works. Yet even in good works, we are dependent on God. Second, again, Paul didn't know what the day of the Lord would, would reveal. But he cared 
deeply that there would be an abundance of good works. And then finally, as we face affliction and see the brokenness of this world, do we consider the coming of Jesus Christ? If you look at the history of our world or even our own time, it can often make your heart sick. Oftentimes we are weighed down by our own actions of injustice or by harm that others have done to, done to us. Harm from the friends, family members, those whose natural ties should help them seek peace and not strife. In the midst of a broken world, do you find peace in Jesus' return? He is true justice. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of abundant life. We thank you that you have prepared good works for us in Christ Jesus. We thank you that now you have set a time for reconciliation so that we might participate in your glory because you are good, because you are kind, because you are self-giving. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts so we too would desire to give for others good. I pray that you'd give us a heart not to make much of ourselves, but to make much of Christ. And in making much of Christ, we desire to make much of others in the church and invite others into that life and vitality and glory. So Lord, use your word Help us to respond well. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.